listening to El Yoshi Diddy Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi. Okay, I'm back in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to a new episode of Yoshiden. And everyone, if you can, please download Yoshiden app for iPhone. And I'm um, <laughs> asking people to buy my T-shirts at yoshiden.com. And if you can donate, that'd be great. And I am moving to Stockholm, Sweden, first or second week of November for three months. So anyone in Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. If you have an interesting guest for the show, please contact me and love to interview them. And uh, looking forward to meeting all my friends and fans in Scandinavia. So I'm back in Los Angeles. I'm here with my friend Rick Hall. Rick uh, is uh, one of the smartest guys that I know in my life. He helped me get a job with um, Evil Angel in 2003. And he is, uh, in- he's an uh, interesting guy, worked in New York in adult business and worked for Larry Flint, Al, uh, Al Ghosting, right, Rick? Al Ghosting, uh, right? He was a freelancer. Okay. You know a lot about the adult business landscape. You've, you even had a fanzine early on. You're like a pioneer in a way because that was a <laughs> – no, seriously, I mean, I, 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 I didn't know you did that as well. So we want to cover that. But most important of all, I want to end the show at the tail end of it, talk about Japan because um, – as by now, most of the listeners know that I'm born and raised in Japan. But Rick have a fascination of Japan and um, traveled to Japan many times. So any listeners who happen to have a writing job, any job in Japan for him, please contact me or contact Rick at what's your Twitter account again? It's uh, at Toastubber. That's uh, T O E S T U B B E R. And 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 when you look at the Twitter account, it's Rick is spelled R R I C K. K. I put two K's for some reason. I guess I was okay. I was trying to avoid the NSA. <laughs> Rick Hall. So R I C K K and H A L L. Okay, that's right. All right. So yeah, please contact Rick because he's uh, he's got a lot of respect for Japan. Love Japanese film, and I, I I'm I'm just looking forward for, uh, for the day when he come back from Japan and do a podcast with me, talking about his experience in Japan. So it's I I have a. A great love for Japan compared to Yoshi, who hates Japan. I don't. I don't hate. I don't hate Japan, but <laughs> it's really hard for me to go. I, did you ever read that book, uh, Stranger in Strange Land? Yeah. yeah. Um, wait, I, I could never say the guy's name right. I always thought it was Heinlein, but I saw other people have said Heinlein. I don't know. I don't really know. So the gist of the book, if I remember right. Um, He's a human, but he grew up in Mars or something. Yeah, I can't. I I can't even remember the the plot. I just I remember there was a lot of uh, crazy uh, hippie philosophy, and which is weird because he was libertarian. He was like a conservative libertarian. Libertarian. <laughs> and I I remember reading a book, thinking if I remember right, and it's, it's been a long time. I mean, I mean, we're, we're talking maybe twenty five years ago. My impression was he was human, but he grew up in Mars or something, and he come back. And um, for me, growing up in Japan, first 10, 10, 11 years of my life, going back, I think I've been back to Japan like four or five times since then. 
um, it's it's a reverse culture shock, you know. And mm-hmm. I think I think I I think on a, on a serious level, when the Westerners go to Japan, it's very refreshing because it's nothing like what it is in the states, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's always exciting to go someplace new, you know. You you have to relearn everything, you know. Um, yeah. Living in the states, if you move from New York to LA, only thing you really have to do is. Where's the local grocery store that I have to go bank? But you could, you know, just take time, but you'll make adjustment. Mm-hmm. There's a quite a bit of big changes, you know, and for me, they look in my face, expect me to behave like them, and I definitely don't. And I don't, I think you got, Westerners don't have that um, right. constraint or whatever you want to call it, you know, so. I, I think it, for me, it's also, I get so, um, mentally sluggish you know with my because i'm a creature of habit and routine sure. and i and when i'm here i i just think i'm much less interesting person than when i when i go over there it's like what uh rosie was saying in your interview with her like uh, uh, uh and then when um we we're talking about rosie trying to comedian okay yeah, go ahead yeah she was saying how I think basically her point was it just it, you become a better person. You become your your make wakes your mind up because you have to uh, reexamine like all the little things that you're used to doing out of habit. And I I really like that. I just think I'm a better person. I'm more responsive to people. I'm sure. Mentally active and. and do you, Do uh, you feel like you take things for granted because you've been in like what thirteen fourteen years now? Yeah, I just I I've always been a real know it all. You know, that's kind of my mo. And once I learn a little bit about something, I feel like I've mastered it, and I don't, which is bullshit because I my my. Uh, my but don't, don't you th- don't you think that's the disadvantage being a smart person? And I'm not I'm not being sarcastic. You're a smart smart guy. I don't know. I know a lot of people who uh, they they get they develop an interest and they go really deep into it and they learn every single little thing about sure. it. And I've never been that way. I just, I'm really, I have no discipline. I have no mental discipline. I learned about something and I like, I learned just enough so that I could pontificate about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, but not enough that uh, I'm an expert at it. So I, I, my, my knowledge base is really broad, but yeah. really shallow. Well, here's another advantage why, why um, I think it would be good. Um, I, I know when people suffer from Alzheimer, one of the things that uh, I noticed, there was a group of nuns in Italy, I think, and none of them has sort of dementia or what, problems like that when they got older. And what they were, some of the things that they were saying is... They yogurt. Ate, huh? They eat a lot of yogurt. Right? <laughs> I don't, well, I, I, it has something to do with, for sure, it has something to do with <laughs> diet, but plenty of ex- exercise. But they, they read a lot. They learned uh, foreign languages. Sudoku. Sudoku, uh, yeah. I mean, really, when any sort of mental uh, exercise, mm-hmm. I think when you move to another country, boy, talk about mental stimulation because you just can't take anything for granted. Like what we consider polite over here might not be pro- polite in Japan and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you even when you, you know, when somebody's insulting in the, in the country of your birth, you could tell when somebody's being malicious or, or um, uh, being sarcastic. But... Mm-hmm. You really can't make that assumption when you're overseas. You just don't know. I mean, I, I give people benefit of doubt, and I think you moving to Japan, it'll be great for your brain. I mean, you know, you just 
you got to unlearn everything, you know? I mean... It's funny, you're, you're talking about the um, uh, politeness. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I never thought of myself as, like, a really rude person until I went to Japan. And then I, I realized that I do so many things that uh, where I'm just going through the motions. And um, Give me an example. I don't know. I, I, it was, it's more just that I learned... Can I, can I can I make a couple of a, a <laughs> no I mean did it did it point did out it, some of my no uh, no not necessarily you but <laughs> in the last couple of times I went back they they were wondering if I was angry all the time because uh-huh. I am louder I think Americans tend to be louder than most Japanese uh-huh. um, I think the loudness thing and being very opinionated yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess opinion doesn't really factor in unless you speak the language or somebody translate for you. But um, I don't know. Just I just just uh, maybe maybe seem more aggressive. But when I live in the states, I'm I'm not really known as being aggressive. You know. Yeah. Um, Here's an example. You're, if, if say you were working retail mm-hmm, and you Japan. have to deal with people that you don't that you don't give a shit about, mm-hmm. but you have to pretend you do. Yeah. So this is the same in in Japan. In in the states, people just say, "Thank you, have a nice day," and not even look at you. Yeah. And in Japan, like it, that's, I mean, you, that does happen. You know, people do that. But for the most part, I've found people would actually look you in the eye and engage you, even though you can see that they don't care. Yeah. But it's part of it's part of being formality and ceremony yeah, of things, right? Yeah. Ceremony is like facing you directly, yeah. looking you in the eye. Yeah. Finding out actually what you want before you know not just like listening with one ear sure going about your business and and that kind of uh, goes to not just uh, even among friends you know just not taking people for granted as much you know? sure I, I think i like that even though you know i know you say you know japanese people are two-faced and <laughs> you know they, there's a lot of hidden subtext you know in what they say well I, I say that because i think everyone is like that yeah it, it just Different culture have a different way to express and hide it, you know. Exactly. And, I don't um, think that they're more um, duplicitous than. Western no, world. I mean, I, I was talking to my friend Joy Kurtzman, and he's Jewish, and he's traveled all over Middle East, and and um, he laughed because I give my two cents how I uh, Jews and Muslims interact. Mm-hmm. Like, there's times some Jewish, I mean, a Muslim mullah or maybe a president or prime minister of some country, they would speak a language like, if you know, if the Israelis don't do what we ask, their blood will spread throughout their land, and we will, you know, it's always like the Jews being the spider and snake, and the, we will destroy their country, and, but it's always blood of this and that, you know, this just this crazy language, right? Yeah. And I could, I could, you know, not being a Jew, I could give you six million reasons why Jews are very sensitive about their security <laughs> and sur- survival, but... But the way I see it, you just kind of have to, like, put a different cultural glasses and uh, ears. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, when, when the Muslim, those fanatic talk like that, mm-hmm. especially Iranian guys, um, they're, it's, it's, it's theater, in my opinion. Yeah, it's like, it's like their version of a rap song. It's, like I'm, I'm glad, because I was going <laughs> to hip up. But to me, when they talk like that, to me, it's kind of like WWE wrestling language, yeah, right? Yeah. It's just a theater. They're just making their fans, I guess they're a citizen of their country, happy. Yeah. And um, it's like hip-hop artists talking about, 
I'm gonna shoot this motherfucker, this and that. But it's just, right. it, it just, you shouldn't take it too literally. But Jews can't take it's, anything literally. It's just their turn on the mic, is really what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's just a lot of talk. Like Saddam Hussein saying, we have weapon, whatever. He never had it. But it's it's the kind of narrative and language they have to do because they're within that yeah. country. Yeah. It's just people outside of that culture don't know how to read into it, you know. And there was some. But lead- on the other hand, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's also they know that it's going outside of their culture and it's going to be taken that way. Too. Right, so right. They're not dumb. I mean, so the smart people on both sides have to remind the leaders how <laughs> that is interpreted. Because yeah. I, 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 there was some guy in a sixty minute. He's the head of Mossad. He was saying, "No, Iranians are very, very uh, rational," which you which is kind of shocking to hear from somebody who used to be head of Mossad. Mm-hmm. So. I think when you're dealing with Japanese, that's a tough one. You you really need if you're going to do business with them, especially you really have to do your homework and spend a lot of time. Because I, I think even Kissing, Henry Kissinger, who obviously worked for President Ford Nixon, he dealt with many tough political leaders in China. I mean, they're one of the toughest people to negotiate against. But Kissinger could deal with them. But I think if I remember right, Kissinger was just baffled by the Japanese. And this is a kind of one of those Japanese 101 when the Japanese people use the word hi, which is like, yes. <laughs> but every language doesn't have exact same translation. Uh-huh. Hi means yes. But it also yeah. means when they're saying hi during the conversation, it probably means, yes, I'm hearing what you're saying. Exactly. doesn't mean that they're agreeing with you or agreeing to do business with you. Yeah, yeah. That's the confusing part. So there, it's a very nuanced thing, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think you know that way better than most foreigners visiting japan it it just um it's 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 a good thing for you because you have patience and this is something that excites you but i just don't want to go through it again i really don't i, I just I, you know well you you'd go back to visit right you you just wouldn't want to live there i would go and visit and there's many things you know life is full of surprises i mean the fact that you might find if, a if, nice boy <laughs> again <laughs> No, it's. I'm sure some of the listeners know that I did something in Japan ten years ago, a little over ten years now. I I don't know if I could safely go back or not, but more I talk to my friends and family. One of them is lawyer. They think it's safe. So, the fact that I even thinking about going visit that's a surprise for me. If you would have told me five years ago, but who knows? Maybe if I visit a couple of times, maybe I finally work. Maybe I might even like to live there. It'll be it'll be odd if that happened because. I haven't lived there in 33 years, you know. Um, but the foreigners, for, for for you, I think it'll be great because uh, there'll be time of uh, uh, happiness, time of sadness, because it's, it's adjustment, you know. Because sometimes you'll be baffled, like, why are they doing something? And they're not the most frank. They don't want to make you feel bad if you're doing something bad. That's the problem. They won't yeah, tell you. Exactly. You got to learn to read that, yeah. you know. I, I I actually uh, appreciate that that uh, my friends over there gave me the time to learn how not to be an asshole. You know, it it wasn't. Uh, I mean, I obviously, I'm sure you'll get shunned if you're enough of a jerk. You know, but uh, I guess I didn't step over the line too much. But there there are plenty of people over there want to know more about America. You know, I yeah. mean, it's it's still interesting. Japan is now third largest economy after U.S. and China, but it's still one of the richest countries in the world. But um, 
you still meet quite a bit of people afraid to travel overseas. And that's the, some of the stereotype of Asian people. They travel in gr- masses of group, you right. know. Mm-hmm. When you do that, there's a lot, there's safety in, in, in group, but um, the drawback, I think, is that the, you don't really get to experience the country that you're visiting. Yeah. And I think, I think if you make close enough friendship and get to know people, I think they're, they're curious about your USA too, you know. I, I think I was lucky uh, my first contact with Japanese people um, were people who actually came to New York um, by themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, th- that's a special breed of person in any culture, you know, the, the kind of person who will just go like you, you know, just go travel yeah. on their own. And um, <clears throat> so I learned, uh, I, I, I got to know people who were more adventurous maybe than the average Japanese person. Sure. So the friends that I have over there are part of that same crowd, you know, they're not a, they're not afraid to step out of the comfort zone. It's it's um I'm probably saying this right because you know, the saying is Ikua yo yo kaido wa kawaii and and something scary. I didn't hear it, it, it's, <laughs> You're talking too fast. It, it, it's basically um, let me rough translation is it's fun to go but coming back scary mm-hmm. that's a real dumb fourth grade translation of it what the Japanese are basically saying this is especially for expat Japanese I think some I think if most Japanese people being honest what they're afraid of going overseas going away for a long time is if you live in another country for a long time you change and when you come back to Japan, one thing you want to do is fit in with uh, everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And if people notice your change, may, may, maybe that's a really difficult thing for you to do, you know? Um, it's like if you're a certain kind of birds or something and uh, you're away from your group. I don't know. That, does that make sense? Like if they notice a little bit of difference, animals will attack you. Yeah. You don't want to look like that book, Painted Bird, you know, that... Yeah. that um, well, there was the expression you you said uh, the 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 nail that sticks out gets hammered in or something like that. Yeah, it, it's it's um that's an old Japanese saying, and in Japan you you don't want to stick out. You literally want to be the same like everyone. But there was a guy named Doctor Miyamoto. He wrote a book called Straight Jacket Society, which yeah. I highly recommend everyone to read that book because here is Japanese person living in Boston. Went to medical school, got a PhD in uh, MD too, I think, if I remember, in uh, psychotherapy. So he is Japanese, knows just a lot about Japan. With his background in um, psychotherapy, he could kind of like re-examine Japanese psyche. Mm-hmm. And and uh, he he wrote a bunch of articles when he was alive in mid nineties to West, explain to Westerners why Japanese do what they do. In a in a language that they understand, so he he really like John Madden. If you're an American football fan, he will literally break down why Japanese behave the way they do in that book. But he pissed a lot of people. Do Do you think because uh, that it, you I did read that book because you recommended it. Yeah, it's really great. What what um do you think maybe it's changed because it's been a while. It's been a couple of decades since that book came out. I I think there. It's changing. I don't think they're changing at the speed that I would like to see. There, there is a word um, 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 in Japanese. It's gaiatsu, 
and atsu means heat and pressure. Gai is foreign. Like, that's why the word for foreigner is gai jin. Jin is Japanese word for people up. Right. So if you say America jin, it means people of America is America. Yeah. So gai jin is foreign people. Mm-hmm. Gai atsu means foreign pressure. So quite often things that changed in the last 150, 200 years, 150 years in Japan, right. 160 years, it's because it's a reaction to foreigners putting pressure on Japan. For example, Commodore Perry represented U.S. A, um, the black ship arrived in mid-1850s, right. and Japan realized their inferiority in technology, and they realized they need to change. So that was the first one. And mm-hmm. World War II had a big influence, obviously, a huge influence on Japanese to change. But I think there was a lot of things that happened in the last 20 years. The fact that you know, the social contract the Japanese had with the the country was you the kids listen to their parents. Parents provide life for their kids. Kids study really hard, pass the examination, get into Todai, which is Tokyo University, mm-hmm. which is like Stanford, Harvard, Japan. After graduating from a really uh, prestigious university or graduating college period, you get a job for a lifetime. But that contract is dead because. Economy's been in dumps, dump for what twenty years, mm-hmm. and uh, the notion that you really work hard for lifetime employee employment, I think that notion's gone. But I think mm-hmm. the last catastrophic one is the tsunami, you know, yeah. with the Fukushima plant. I think um, that literally had just catastrophic change in Japanese psyche because government was once again incompetent. Right. It took them forever to respond. And all the citizens of Japan trusted these guys. And you can. I mean, if you're an honest young person, you can honestly trust the private sector and the government. Yeah. And I think all the talent ones, I know that the smart ones trying to leave the country. I really yeah. believe that. My, uh, I got a, a couple of gaijin friends who were living in Tokyo for many years. Are they years. white gaijin? Uh, the husband is and the, his wife is a uh, Singaporean. Mm-hmm. They moved to Singapore right away. They were they were just totally disgusted with the the, the whole uh, earthquake. The, yeah, the, with the response of the government and mm-hmm. you know the the uh, the lies from the uh, you know power company. And, uh, yeah, and just and I, I I think maybe they're a little more worried about um, radiation than I would be, but. But I'm not there, so. <laughs> yeah. It's. I I have such a uh, conflicting emotion about Asia. Even though I've only been to Japan and South Korea, and next year I would like to go to China and a couple other places. Mm-hmm. But um, I I just think I of course they're my people. I want better life for them, but uh, here, here's a couple, several issues, and and uh, and, and I like to hear your input because you've been there. It's a different eyes from mine, but that's for sure. Yes, you have the superior Aryan, <laughs> cold Aryan eyes. <laughs> but I, 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 I just think one other thing, one of many things I love in America. This at least we have uh, this thing called um, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. No, nowhere it does it say guarantee of happiness, but it's given. It's given like when you do those geography, I mean, uh, uh, geometry uh, proof thing that you do. The first line in America, you you have absolutely right to pursue happiness. Nobody's going to guarantee it or 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 fix it if you don't get it. But at least we, in theory, believe that. 
when you talk to most Asian people, if and if you're an Asian kid, ask your parents like, "Are you happy?" It's such an awkward response. Always, mm-hmm. it's very awkward <laughs> response. If they take a little bit, if they take too much time trying to explain it, mm-hmm. it's because they're not, you know. And and uh, and believe me, I'm biased, but that's that's my impression. But do you ever say you're happy? Me, I don't. I, don't. I when I think about the times in my life when I was happy, it's always in the past, and I never realized at the time that I was happy. I'm I'm the I'm the same same way too, but that's a different issue, isn't it? Because you're not making effort to make yourself happy, but over there, um, it's kind of understood. That's that's not the priority of everyone. Right? You're not even. You know, you're supposed to sacrifice. That's not even the goal. <laughs> that's not even goal. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's my thing because I just see so many of my friends. I think they could be happier, and a lot of them tell me flat out they wish they could just stay here in the states. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't want to make that kind of. It's, it's not that they have. They don't want to work. They want to work. It just the work has too way too much. They, the work just simply asks you way too much. I think in, in in Japan because it's a point of you don't even have to work hard. You have to look like you're being busy or look like you're doing something. Right. My attitude is like, why don't you just work hard six, five, six, seven, eight hours and leave no. instead of staying there twelve, thirteen, fourteen hours when. It does no one any good. The company's actually not getting any productivity out of yeah, you. Yeah, that's crazy. But that's, there's a lot of this pretend. That's why I don't like. Yeah. They need to stop pretending and be honest about it. And it's it's really, really hard for them. Well, I think it's probably also in the corporate culture, it's like a control thing. Because mm-hmm. if you're there 20 hours a day, you know, and, and every basically you have no private time to yourself. Sure. Everybody's in your business. Sure. And it's easier to have your tentacles around somebody who you know every detail of their yeah. personal life you know? and it's not under their business it's like I, you know it's, it's not the same thing but I, I, I've been to Korea before too and Samsung is like this, the conglom- that conglomerate is so huge um, one way or another if you work for them your life pretty much revolve around it mm-hmm. like, because they own obviously electronic and cell phone but they also have Restaurant and banking, um, you know what I mean. Like, if you work with Samsung, most is like most likely you use their uh, phones, use their banks. Maybe you go their grocery store. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, I don't know. It, I just there's just too much connection with those uh, organization. Uh, I think once you finish working for the day, you should do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Uh, here's another thing. Um, it's not that Asian people are dishonest. It, it, it's 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 we're not dishonest. It's just sometimes telling the truth will make people hearing it uncomfortable, and we're not. They're very sensitive about other people's feelings. Yeah, yeah. And truth, quite often, is very painful. Right. And and or it's embarrassing to someone. I, that's why I think most Asian American scientists are very good scientists. But if you being if you're being completely honest. Very small percentage actually win Nobel Prize in science, mm-hmm. because for you to win a Nobel Prize in science, you pretty much find previous predecessors finding wrong, and you have a new discovery, mm-hmm. and that's a tough one to. It's I think that's a tough one. To, let's say you work with somebody underneath someone, some other scientist, and this is somebody who is your mentor. I'm generalizing, but um, you find a discovery that pretty much proved your uh, somebody that somebody that you look up to wrong. 
I, I don't know how comfortable most Asian people are in that regard. At the general, saying you're wrong is, is yeah taboo. Yeah, and 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 the one notorious case is is um, the Korean airline flight. I don't know when it was, fifteen, twenty years ago, maybe twenty five. Mm-hmm. It's been a while, but the there's a chief captain. Back when you were sixty. Yes, yeah. chief um, captain. I don't know what you call him. The main guy, and there's two lieutenant under him. The lieutenants knew. Um, if they continue to fight at this course, they're gonna smash into a mountain. Mm-hmm. But they they didn't want to correct the the chief captain. And Malcolm Glasswell talk about it, in mm-hmm. outliner. And there actually is a black box explaining uh, sequence when they're having conversation at the minute to minute to the very end when they crash out of the wow. mountain. And Glasswell um, write that it's the most <laughs> uncomfortable thing that you could listen or read about. <laughs> Do you know this story? I no. It's amazing. it's it's so uncomfortable when you listen to it, and it's, it's like a it's it's like not even real. It's like a parable of you know the guy who couldn't be rude. <laughs> they they rammed him into a mountain because he, he the, the plane smashed five hundred fifty superior five hundred fifty six hundred miles an hour to the side of the mountains or hills or something wow. like that, and this two kept. I don't know. I I don't. I'm not. I'm not a cap. Uh, I don't know anything. I, I wish my friend Stan Chan, comedian, uh, pilot for FedEx, was here to explain. But mm-hmm. the, the two people who uh, were underneath him knew the plane was going to crash. That's what I'm saying. Like that's when you have to say, "Hey, fucker, you're wrong. You're not <laughs> yeah. going to drag me into this shit." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think some level of rudeness is a healthy thing. Right. To say that this is wrong. At least they didn't hurt his feelings before he died. Yes. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just like, yes, I, I would say politeness is a good thing. Yeah. But there's a, as economists would call, margin of diminishing return. There's a <laughs> point where certain level of politeness will only hurt everyone. Right. And there's certain amount of but rudeness is necessary, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just think one of my favorite stories I've ever written in the West was Oedipus Rex. It's a great tragedy. And, and um, to summarize the story, Oedipus... Uh, his his, I, I think if I remember the story goes, basically that that the uh, seer people who see the future told Oedipus's parents, who are kings and queens, yeah. that this son will, if he lived to be adult, will kill the father, mm-hmm. marry the mother, and uh, you know this is what I foresee. Right. So Oedipus, Greek means swollen foot or something, because um, the king. May his one of his servants to take Oedipus away and supposed to kill the baby, but he didn't have a heart to kill the baby, so he gave the baby away to some shepherd farmer or something. Right. Years later, uh, when he heard the prophecy, he thought he was going to kill his adopted parents, not knowing right. that's not the one. So he leaves at the crossroad. He meets his father, not knowing it was his father. They get into this big fight over fighting over a bridge or something. Mm-hmm. So he killed his father, travel across, married the mother mm-hmm. after. Um, killing the sphinx with the whole enigma and um, riddle and things like that and um, so the land all of prophecy and, and I think things terrible happened in the land where you know obviously all this it, stuff was was pure coincidence by the way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically if you kill your father and, and fuck your mother <laughs> these terrible things have happened to the land yeah. he declared I will uh, take this uh, duty to find who, the murderer of the king, whoever it was, uh-huh. and and the more he does detective work, right. 
the more he's realizing back of his head, this is more, he's beginning to realize this might be him. Yeah. Here's a big difference. If this story was in Asia, the guy would stop. <laughs> the guy would stop because the truth will hurt people's feelings. Right. And this is the reason why, to this day, I just think the West is superior to East in that respect because... The That's why we don't have all those plagues happening, right? Like <laughs> yes. Fukushima. <laughs> That's right. Stop fucking your mother and killing your dad, Japan. <laughs> That's why you have Fukushima. No, I, I find that story just incredible because I, I just think I come from a culture where stop the investigation because it will make too many people uncomfortable. Yeah. But that's the big difference with Wes. Wes, even if, if even if he have to declare himself as literally a motherfucker, yeah. he went through a very end. And once he realized that the mom killed herself, he got a something. I think he plucked his eyeballs out. Yeah. And um, that 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 to me is such a powerful story, and and it, it really differentiates between East and West. And um, another dark side of uh, Japan. That kind of ties into that. There's too many Nigerians. <laughs> oh, you don't mean literally no, dark no, no, side. No. Okay. There are a lot of Nigerians. Let's be honest. In Japan. Yeah, Kokujin. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the uh, what was I going to say? The, the the criminal justice system over there. You know, they've got like a 99 point something percent conviction rate of uh, anyone who enters uh, a Japanese courtroom. And I, and I don't trust anything 99.9% yeah, unless Walter White is making crystal <laughs> meth. Is, is Walter White the new detective for Japan? <laughs> but there's a there's a really good uh, dramatization that came out a couple of years ago called uh, I Just Didn't Do It. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. No. It's about some young guy who's on a train. and um, In Japan? In Japan, and he gets accused by uh, a girl of... Uh, Japanese girl of, of fondling her on the train. Yeah, and um, he gets sucked into the system, and he didn't do it. But you know, of course, it's a little ambiguous until uh, toward the end whether he did or not. But uh, first of all, if you've been to Japan, just pack trains, and if yeah. you didn't fondle a girl, what kind of person are you? Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really I, I I have question about that because I wonder if it was Japanese person would they make that as a big deal as uh, they did? Mm-hmm. I have doubts. Mm-hmm. I, I I know when people say Japan below crime rate, my cynical part tells me it's simply because, for one thing, they don't report it. I yeah. think. Yeah. I I think the rape is a lot higher than that. Mm-hmm. And two, only time rape make a big news is when it's Westerners or non-Japanese doing it. You know. So I I think you have a combination of people being stigmatized so they don't want to report it but um, but i think I, it also there's probably a lot of cooperation with the police as mm-hmm. well you know um i won't go into why i know this but i have seen people who uh in in america might uh not speak to the police and might not uh, cooperate with an investigation sure be very forthcoming because it's just not uh, it's just not the thing to do. I don't know. I don't really under, understand what it is. Whether it's fear, mm-hmm. which is understandable, or uh, if you know, I, I, I just don't know. Well, Japan. Or whether it's just politeness. You know, you don't want to contradict what the cop is telling you. I I have to say, number one rule that uh, everyone should know is don't trust cops. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is not to say every police officer are bad. Mm-hmm. No. I'm not saying that at all, but um, 
I, I just think you got to be skeptic, just like they're skeptic about you. You could be a completely innocent person, but did you have in Japan? It's 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 a, the the system's different. Over here in the West, at least in America, they have to prove you guilty. Right. In Japan, you have to prove yourself innocent. Yeah. And and um, quite often, Amnesty International always talk Japan as one of the horrible the uh, they violate human rights. Mm-hmm. It's a subtle thing. Like they could keep you. I don't know the days, but. I think they could keep you uh, between 21 to 28 days without charging you. It's a horrible, horrible system. But the, but, 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 but the, the, on the, the other hand... But, listen to, but let me finish that okay. point. Yeah, yeah. They could hold you. Then, in theory, they have to let you go. But they could charge you. They could uh, accuse you of something else. So they could keep you another 21, 28 days. You oh, know what I mean? Nice. Like they can just Indefinitely, if they yeah. wanted to. Right. Um, the... Uh, the other, the other but thing, I still want to visit Japan, everyone. <laughs> no, the other thing is like, you know, on the other hand, how many people actually get into the system? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, it's. I think that might fuel why people think, or people over there think, if you're accused, you must be guilty because there's probably a lot of social padding. But you know, they're not. They're not. There's not mm-hmm. a huge industry over there of throwing people into jail as there is here. You know, it's not like every cop on the street is looking for somebody to pad their stats sure you know so it, you probably have to be doing something out of the ordinary to even get noticed over there so. right and this is the reason why people need to speak out more which is which is not really part of their culture you know and um it's hard to explain you know you, you have japan which is size of um montana i guess and it has almost 45% of our population in such a small country. Mm-hmm. So small space is limited. Everyone learned early on that only way they could survive is if everyone cooperate, which is in, in on a face level is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. But that means when somebody don't want to do that, there are certain forces war literally beat them down into the group. That's yeah. that's why that nail that stick out must be hammered in. It's, it's this, this thing where, yeah, after World War II, Everybody have to make sacrifice because they're just in deep shit. But yeah. there's a point you, you you create enough wealth for the country. People start sure examining their life and say, "Is this what I want for myself and my kid mm-hmm. to work like this, and not to reap the benefit or have some happiness?" You know, yeah. I, I I think I think young people are really talking. And in fact, I'm, I'm I highly encourage young people to travel overseas because my cousin, uh, we're ethnically Korean, but he was born in Japan when he was seven or eight, moved to South Korea, and he's been living there. So he he's very familiar with two cultures. The few weeks I spent with him, like a month and a half, two months ago, he loved it over here, and he loved the freedom, you know. And um, we just take it for granted. Just the fact that you're not crammed into a small space like they do. Yeah. It's um, There's a lot of problem over here, but this is actually a place where you could actually actively pursue your happiness, and people don't think you're crazy for it. I, I hear what you're saying, and I uh, I definitely agree with the ideal. Mm-hmm. But I I'm but you've been here a lot longer than I've been I have here too. a long time, and mm-hmm. I'm very uh, I'm sick of um, a lot of the shit that's going on. In, sure. Um, in this country, so I I, I <laughs> here's a funny thing, though, Rick. But part of it is if you go to Japan, you maybe you don't understand what's going on, so that might keep you away from that. That's good. Cynicism, I, you know. Ignorance is bliss. Um, I, but uh, I, I also I, I, you know, I've so the, with the freedom I do have, look what look what I'm doing with it. I yes, do, I do nothing with it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm just, it's just, it's a waste, you know. All that freedom, it's a waste on me. I'd rather be in a, a place where I can thrive that's maybe a little more, that's got more social, uh, the walls are a little closer socially maybe. But but on the other hand, like, like we've talked about many times, I don't, I'm not held to the same standard. When I'm over there, I'm not held to the standard no. of, of an, even another Asian person. You know, even like another. Even if you do something wrong, yeah. you know, chance of them telling me is very small. But especially foreigners, I don't yeah. think they will say. But I, I think the key for anyone like yourself, anyone visiting Japan, I, I have to say, if you're gonna go, at least do some homework. You yeah. know, yeah. you you have no idea. Uh, for those of you who never visited overseas or another country, period. If you just do a little bit of effort, they know. Like, look, you know, mm. we appreciate you doing that. You know, yeah. and I'm not. I'm not saying spend four years of college. I'm just saying, how difficult is it? A few months before you go, you look a little bit of language stuff. Maybe you read a little bit of history. Maybe look at a certain custom. Maybe even go to a couple of Japanese restaurant or meet people there. So when you go, you'll be completely shocked. You know, yeah. um, and don't expect everyone to make adjustment for you. Even though in Japan, most likely they will try to go out of their way to help you. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think. Um, I, I do think it will be good for you, Rick, personally. I know you well enough, and I think if you need some uh, routine and, um, you know, if if t- if people give you too much freedom t- to the point of you being lazy or something, yeah. Japan will be definitely a good place. And I think you'll meet new friends, and it will be easier for you to reinvent yourself, right? Because if you live in a place everybody knows, sometimes they tease you or give you a hard time. Yeah. So it's a great combination well, the, mm-hmm. it's not that i'd be able to reinvent myself i mean i'm too old to reinvent myself but i but, uh, no that's not true but it's just that tricky I, dick did it how many times <laughs> retro nixon it's just that nobody you know i'm always going to be an enigma you know because i'm a foreigner so it's, uh, I, I like that anywhere else you go in the world sure like with you it's probably the same everywhere <laughs> there's probably you know, until you open your mouth, you're you're always uh, but I, I, I um, going to be an alien. I, you know? I, I I meet a lot of people in Europe, and I'm, I make pretty good connection, and um, it's it's always fun because whatever is daily routine for them, I find it fascinating. Even like taking kids to school or the way they have to do business at bank, it's just the, the tiny bit of difference. Even you get on a bus, or you know, it's it's really fascinating to me. And I think it'll be for you too, you know. So, um, like, like, like I said, um, I want to talk about this stuff. Um, we were doing this a little backward, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I, I know, I know for sure, you, you, you um, stick with this. You will eventually go to Japan and um, meet people there, and very least, you know, keep working and going to school and stuff. But um, you should, I think you're due going back to Japan and visit, you know. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait. So anyone who has a job opportunity or opportunity to even go to school in Japan, you know, uh, contact me about Rick. And uh, he helped me a lot, you know, my previous job here. And uh, once again, Rick, what's your um, Twitter account? Twitter is at uh, Toastubber, T-O-E-S-T-U-B-B-E-R. And uh, it's R I C K K H. I mean, I'm sorry, R I C K K space Hall H A L L. So find him and uh, either contact me or contact Rick. And um, I'm planning to do a couple podcasts with a comedian named Aiko Tanaka. She's from Tokyo. She's been living for the last 15 years. So we'll do um, 
I'm hoping we do at least half a dozen before I go Norway, and uh, we'll cover Japan stuff. So we'll be that. And uh, let me pause for a second. All right, uh, we're back, and uh, let's talk the last half of the thing, um, Rick. So I, I'm 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 interested in your background. A couple of things. So you you grew up in Virginia, Maryland. Uh, I I grew up uh, in. District Heights, Maryland. Then, when I was um, about eleven, we moved to Northern Virginia, Reston. Okay, and I, and I I I I'll, I'll, um, I'll be very careful when I ask these questions <laughs> because you know when we talk one's families, you know some people are not as sensitive as I am. But mm-hmm. so um, I, I just want to talk about a little bit about your dad because your dad had a really interesting. Well, actually, you and your dad picked a very interesting pr- profession in like. <laughs> two major roads kind of spreading wide open you know yeah. but um so so your dad um dad, well how do you describe your dad is, is he a pretty conservative guy he's a very conservative guy um what did where did he grow up that same area he grew up uh in ohio and west virginia um, okay oh my both my mom's parents and my dad's parents are kind of from that area like kind of uh what cu- what styles of white people are you? German? Hillbilly. <laughs> no, don't say hillbilly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, ethnically we're from uh, England, Germany, and maybe some France. Okay. France. So uh, so your dad was um, somewhat conservative. He worked. He worked and went to school, and while attending the university. I, he, uh, he was re- he was recruited by whom? By uh, the Treasury Department, and uh, he went into training to become a Secret Service agent, which he eventually did. But did he so also serve in military? He was a uh, he was in the Navy when he was uh, when he was right. Uh, you know, I was a, I was not born, so I don't know. Okay, but he was in, he was in the Navy. Um, I think when I was a when I was first born, and then um, he was managing a cafeteria for a while while he went to school. Sure. And my mom helped support him. What and was he studying in college? I don't know. I, I would assume like criminal mm-hmm. justice or something like that. So. But that's just an assumption. I have no idea. Right. So. Was is there like a long history of military services in your family, or just your dad? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't really know my uh, the the male um, my male grandparents. My mom's dad uh, was he was uh, in the air force mm-hmm. and um, was a bomber in World War Two. I see. But uh, I don't really know much about the military history of the rest of my family. So your dad did some military service, and he was recruited by Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. To be a Secret Service, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, so he started. Uh, he went into agent training, and he became a special agent while Ford was in office. So he's done protection for Ford, Carter, Reagan, uh, Bush, and Bush, and then uh, I Clinton. I'm for not a sure bit. if he re- mm-hmm. retired when Clinton was in office or right before. I'm not sure. I see. But he was a huge Reagan booster. He was, he was a big fan of Reagan. Yeah, uh, I would imagine. Yeah. And um, so, 
Wow, that's that's really interesting that um, they recruited him, and um, so yeah. So he he literally like stood stand by the president all the time. Yeah, that when when he was on duty. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's the guys who do. Uh, I mean, some he would describe. You know, it, my relationship was kind of strained with my dad, so I often and and he, I never actually. Is it sh- because you want to shoot the president? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to shoot the president. <laughs> I should say I don't really care about the president. I'm I'm very, uh, I'm, uh, I guess I'm more of a libertarian, anarch- sure. anarchist type of bent. And uh, I I have uh, throughout my life I've hated every president that that has been in office. So I I don't. Uh, it, but not well, to, hold on. Not hold to the extent of wanting to kill anybody. No, no, no. But what, what, because every one of them have some one way or another disappointed you, abuse of power, and so on. Is that I why? I just think it's a, it, as, I just I just think that politicians in general, uh, anyone who wants to be in that office is automatically an asshole mm-hmm. and uh, a scumbag, and they probably have all kinds of. I mean, you don't want to get me started on that. No, no, no. Okay. My my political views are very tiresome to other people. <laughs> not to me. <laughs> not um, to that. Not to that tea party. <laughs> okay, so you you have a strong feeling about that, and your dad, Secret Service, and you told me it's not it's not a it's not it's not a funny thing to laugh at, but I find it amusing. The two times, several attempts on the life uh, uh, life on presidents, mm-hmm. uh, Ford. And Ronald Reagan, yeah. those are the days your dad was not working. He was, yeah. Well, they, they, they've got a lot of. They've got. They've got at least. Uh, I think maybe three thousand agents. I'm not sure. Sure, sure. You're working at any one time, but. Um, Do you ever talk to him about like, you know, missing those days or anything like that to your dad or? No, I just I, you know I, I asked him if he was on duty because. Uh, because you know, part of their job is literally to take the bullet for the president, right? Exactly. That's if the, if you're standing by the president, that's what you're supposed mm-hmm. to do. The other thing is, uh, I mean, they've got all kinds of other details, that, which are like, you know, whenever any of the people they're protecting are going to a new place, sure. they have to, you know, swarm that place and make sure it doesn't have any devices or people that shouldn't be around. And, you know, like, they, it takes a long time to clear every... Uh, Every site that the uh, mm-hmm. president or any uh, anyone I, else that they're protecting, because they protect other people. I hope them. you have a chance to talk to your dad. I'm just curious what he thought about the whole fiasco in Colombia when those circus agents were getting hookers and stuff like that. I, I thought about asking him about it, but I, I. Feel How many hookers do you think your dad had over the years? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would hope that he would pay them. Though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, I just think it's, I, it's, I, I just think I thought it was kind of a weird story because what hooker doesn't get money in advance, you know? Like uh, that's that that was the hole in the story for me. Like I understand it's a, a scam. I for one thing, it, I think it's people who don't tip or people who don't pay their hookers mm-hmm. are contemptible. But uh, it, I think it, you it, should. It, it I, was, I think it you should. Curious that uh, there would be prostitutes who wouldn't demand upfront payment because that's isn't that the first rule of. But, but when I get hookers in Mexico, I've noticed uh, quite often, like, I, I, I pay them at the end. Really? Yeah, and I personally prefer that way because that so almost... Like gar- a Central American thing. Like. Because to me, that almost guarantees, like, the quality service you, you get from them, you know? Oh, so it's kind of like a tip. I mean, 
let's say I um the girl agrees for like sixty bucks for like twenty minutes or half an hour or whatnot. Right. And I and if if I think she went gone beyond what I was asked of, you it's not. I think it's fair to give them like eighty bucks, even hundred depends on the service, you know. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that. It it just um, people do react to incentives, and I think. Um, do you leave a breath mint as well? <laughs> no, I give them um, <laughs> Fred Friendstone HIV uh, chewables <laughs> medication. No, it's it's. I mean, a lot of hookers do ask. Like European ones, always demand unless unless it's it's the girl that you know, mm-hmm. that that you have experience with them. And she 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 trusts you. Then that's not an issue. But yeah, my, quite my, after my one of, one of the rule of that is like if you if most of them do ask money up front, so it's not unbelievable to me in Colombia if that's how they do it. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And, and quite often, and I'm I'm only could say for Mexican and Brazilian girls, but there's more of. Um, girlfriend experience to go with it mm-hmm. depends on the ones you know there are bitchy cunty ones sure but, mm-hmm. um, but you could kind of tell I mean I, I think I'm getting better at filling out people's energy oh, I think we're going to say little children no kids are so much easier <laughs> lollipop and a little bit of a punch in the face uh, well my one I only uh, I only experienced the uh uh, a prostitution um, encounter once, and uh, it was strict, you know, cash on the table. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I haven't done. I've only gotten like hooker once in the states when I was like a teenager, you know, and then. Um, but ever since then, I've always got um, hookers places that is primarily legal, you know. But if you never gotten a hooker before, it's it's still kind of awkward how how. It's not like you got a manual. You, you just it's that there's a lot of um, trying and error, figure out. And 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 another thing is when you when you get um, hookers from another country, there's a cultural factor too. So you don't there's a lot, you know you just gotta learn mm-hmm. through experience. But um, I I just think the whole secret and service. Do, do they when when you get naked? Do they do they charge for the time they spend laughing at you? Rick, actually, it's a lot of it's crying. <laughs> They're just re-examining their life. <laughs> Why they made their mistake? Like they should, they they realized they should have gone to school, got that degree. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing some good in the world. Yeah, know, helping people reevaluate themselves. Um, so I I just think the whole Colombia Secret Service things like it was more like, how could you be such a scumbag not to pay that? Not even yeah. tip like. Not keeping your word. That's that's and, total arrogance. I, I could see that as like you know just the arrogance of the power government thing. employee. Uh, and, hey, I'm here for the fucking president. Yeah. Let me tell you something. When and this is the reason why I I understand there are some human trafficking shit going out there. I do I do think both sides people for. I mean, I, I obviously no one's for trafficking, but, mm-hmm. but people are against it. Both sides have, they're biased, and they have a different motive to uh, exaggerate or minimize that. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, of course, no one is for trafficking, but I, I just think when you legalize prostitution, you're creating more problem for those women. Absolutely. So it's not even a matter of minimizing the incidence of trafficking. It's like, what 
what would what actually would work against trafficking and driving one of the hugest economies worldwide underground sure. does not make you know and making a, a huge segment of of every the population of every every society uh, unable to get police protection sure. make make them making them actually prey to the the worst cops yes uh, in Colombia it's legal that's why those women went to the police exactly. and made those scumbags pay for their I do I feel I do feel one of the secret service thing one one of the guy has nothing to do with Colombia but somehow they caught him with uh, extramarital affair or a hooker or something. The guy ended up killing himself. Mm-hmm. Had nothing to do with the whole Colombia fiasco. Wow. But I, I just think when you illegalize prostitution, they have no way of getting help by the police because they're, you know, it's yeah. just a catch-22. Um, this is like a big issue of mine. Like if, uh, well, you and I, wanna, I, you, I, and I you, you and I both agree on yeah. we are both against drug wars. Yeah. Uh, this fucking prostitution stuff. Yeah, and, those, uh, those are my my two big things right now. The the thing about uh about prostitution is uh um may may I add something yeah, before yeah. you continue? Before one other one other thing you said. Yeah. One other thing you were saying. One other thing I was reading uh, on your computer. Um, the blogger. I keep forgetting her name. She used to be a prostitute. Um, and, uh, Maggie McNeil. She, made a good point that uh, the reason why work situation got better in the states not because government went out of their way to uh, change the law which it did eventually but you legalize uh, people to assemble and create a union mm-hmm. and make demand to make changes for their work working conditions and I think only way prostitution situation get better and safety for prostitution when you legalize it and allow them to protest and ask for better protection and better working right. facility, which most Europeans are enlightened yeah. and they're uh, making accommodation to that. No, no, I'm not suggesting if you legalize, everything's going to be happy and sh- sunny and shiny. No, it's just going to minimize... Uh, injustice. J- yeah. You, you get like uh, somebody, like the serial killer in New York who they uh, never caught and many people believe that he was a cop because of the clues that were left uh yet nobody who was is a witness or has any information which would be other prostitutes or or johns or other johns Johns. can go to the nobody can go to the authorities because uh you know they're putting themselves at risk yes so if you know something that might help them you can't say it so that that of course they're not going to solve that case you know it's it's just it's amazing uh, how people don't see that mm-hmm. uh, criminalizing people does not make them cooperative. <laughs> yes, and, and and like I said, the first one of the first rules I tell you, even young kids, don't trust the police completely. Yeah, you, you can because they, they it's it's They've got uh, different priorities. They have different priorities, and it's still a job for them too. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not in business of justice. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. they're not. They work for Department of Justice, mm-hmm. but that's not their job. And uh, quite often, I think police are doing way too many things that they shouldn't be doing because they're not good at it, first of all. But um, legalizing drugs and prostitution, those are two of many other things that that bugs me about the world that needs to change. But um, anyway, um, so I think the the Secret Service Colombian shit is all fucked up. And um, I I, I just think um, what they do 
their free time is their business, but that's one of the few jobs that kind of questionable if you do that. Not because I, I'm against prostitution, because I'm not, but if you do that, aren't you opening yourself to getting blackmail? You know, it's it just, mm -hmm. uh, it's complicated, but they were absolutely wrong not to pay those girls. Yeah. Absolutely wrong, and they should be treating, uh, if you protect any women, even prostitutes, you protect all women, you know? That's it is my complicated, because when you say the blackmail thing, that's what they used to say about uh, gay guys mm -hmm. in, in public service. Like, sure. You can't let homosexuals into office because they'll get blackmailed yeah you know now of course it sounds silly yeah but uh you know in a perfect world prostitution would be legal and sure you have to, you know, well in a perfect would, world it would be something you would you would get blackmailed about in a perfect world probably women will find themselves so no need to do that but but well i'm trying to some, i think some of uh, there's always going to be some people who i mean there's such a huge demand it's not it's for a lot of people it's a better job than mcdonald's sure it's always going to be that way yeah um, so we'll, we'll talk more about the libertarian stuff later on. But so you, your dad was Secret Service, and you, you you were you know like when you're a young person rebellious, so you decide not to follow your dad's track. <laughs> uh, well, there was no, there was no. I don't know. When I was growing up, uh, he wasn't around much because especially when I was very young, he was always on the road. Yeah. I, actually, most of actually most of my life, when I was very young, he he was around. Uh, but once he started getting sent overseas a lot uh, and doing long details, sure. I, I didn't see him a lot. I did learn, you know, he he taught me some stuff. He, like I got to fire a gun when I was pretty young, and uh, I uh, I used to sneak into his uh, briefcase where he had lock picking tools, so I know how to to pick some locks, and I know is that right? stuff about that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, real basic shit. I'm sure, sure these days. A lot of locks I wouldn't be able to get into, but but we we are all like you, I think we talked before. Who what teenager is not awkward, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think you were too. And I I, I guess you were telling me dr drugs kind of helped you make adjustment from the awkward stage. Yeah, yeah. I was really withdrawn, um, mm -hmm. really socially awkward, and um, you know. It's an old story. I'm sure most people feel this way, even even if they weren't, you know, sure. even if they weren't uh, a total goofball like like me. And then, uh, but when I finally, and I was always scared of uh, of drugs. Um, I would hear uh, when friends of mine started getting into pot. I was, you know, I, it was very spooky and scary, and I stayed away from them for about a year. And then I, at one point. I, uh, someone gave me some pot and I went to my uh, best friend's house who was another kind of outcast. We were both into weird music and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and we smoked pot and it was great. And I, it was like a real... Was it like a... Uh, I know people don't want to hear, but did it, did, did, were you like happy? Yeah, it was, it was a great time. Mm -hmm. I had the greatest time. And uh, once I started doing it again um it opened up it opened me up to this whole uh different world social scene of, of mm -hmm. you know all the other kids who were stoners. music and the stoners yeah yeah so for it was funny because like when i i got into pot it was a very quick thing i was it was, it was already two years into high school mm -hmm. i for for about a year i 
uh, hung out with the long-haired kids and, and listened to stoner rock. This was in the 70s, late 70s. And uh, then my, I, uh, this guy moved in next door to me who's uh, from college, and um, he knew all about punk rock, and he played me all these records, and that totally blew my mind. This is like a whole summer of smoking pot and listening to Bomb and the Rosillos and Devo and uh, the Ramones and all kinds of crap that was... So so, so there was this big awakening, yeah, right? It was a yeah, you were just a, this miserable, mopey kid, yeah. and drugs and music opened it up. Yeah, and, and then when I went back to school, that kind of stuff, there was a huge... Yeah. There was a huge culture uh, schism at the time between kids who were into that and kids who were into the hard rock of the time. So it was a, I was kind of an outcast uh, as a punk rocker at the time. And then I graduated high school as my parents were splitting up and I moved into DC, which was uh, interesting. I'd been going to clubs and I, I got swallowed up into the the music scene and mm -hmm. uh, friends who were artists and uh, and and a lot of drugs and I, I, I got more into drugs and it was it was kind of a, s a slow creep until I was finally introduced to heroin and then I got uh, I, I quickly got hooked because it just because I didn't I didn't I'd lost my fear of it, so I, I, I just didn't... Uh, and this is how dumb I am, because, you know, the, the heroin, you know, when you start talking about crack, heroin, and cocaine and stuff, it's, it's, it's a, those are like heavy duty, you know, and, and of course, when, you, when I hear it, like, you know, fear just popping in my head, but, I mean, how, how would you explain to someone who's never taking heroin, what is it, that's your body and brain? Well, the first time it was like it was just kind of like being in a dream. It's like when you talk about um, when you hear people describing uh, smoking opium, you know, like mm -hmm. the old English guys in in uh, Shanghai, you know, sure. <laughs> smoking opium and just having like hallucination. It was it wasn't like a hallucination. It was just like I was in this like half waking state. Uh, it was it was pleasant, but it wasn't um, mind blowing. And then the second or third time I did it, I I, it, I started getting the real physical ru rush that people describe. And does it make you happy, or what does it do? It removes all pain, so you just like you know it 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 eases your any you know physical pains you may have mm -hmm. and your uh, uh, emotional. Uh, you can just ignore any emotional. It makes you numb. Yeah, it just kind of makes you numb, but. It's there's a, a euphoria as well. But how long does it last? Uh, depends on how much of a tolerance you have. I see. When I was when I was starting out, probably last you know five or six hours or something like that. But uh, so were you functional like working when you take heroin? Yeah, yeah, it was easy to 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 function. By the way, those of you who want to invite uh, Rick to Japan, don't worry. He doesn't <laughs> use heroin. So. I haven't used heroin in over 20 years. Okay. Yeah. And, I um, and I will not. Because you, you could get 14-year-old hooker in Japan. They, go, <laughs> they could go wink, wink, don't do it again. But even like also like marijuana, goodbye yeah. freedom, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they just... I, 
I understand. They're that. very zero, zero tolerance policy. So, so you you got in heroin, and well, so what was what was your parents' reaction when they heard? I mean, marijuana. I, I could even like, huh, whatever. But yeah. well, my parents were kind of. It's weird. While while I was uh, doing drugs all through my twenties, my mom became a nurse and actually was <laughs> right. counseling drug addicts. And she didn't know that you were taking and drugs. She had no idea. Yeah, she. I think she knew I smoked pot or something like that. You know, but she didn't. Uh, she had no idea I had a problem because we didn't really. She didn't see me that much. So your mom was like. By this time, I was living in New York. You know, was, uh, but like the few times your mom did see you in twenties. Your mom was kind of like Hank from Breaking Bad. Had no idea. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Not just she's very good at it. She's uh-huh. helping these people. Had right. no idea because she, she just she would never think to evaluate me on the same by the same standards. You know, I, I was always her son. So yeah, only these other people with horrible parents have right. a heroin problem, but right. not my son. <laughs> my little Rick will never touch that stuff, right? I don't know. I can't speak for her. So. So anyway, uh, it, it, at one point I I was totally fed up. I mean, uh, for my it's, it's, for the it's, last few years, uh, well, for for actually, I think about half of my uh, addiction, I was living with a girlfriend who uh, tolerated. She tolerated it, and I would uh, leech off of her. I was working maybe about half of the time. Yeah, um, I was shoot, shooting photo stats in a dark room. So I could get high in the dark room and, or, or you know, take naps or whatever. Sure. It's easy to, to fuck off in that job. And um, at, at some point she, she uh, I could tell that we were, we were finally drifting apart. I don't know how she stayed with me for so long. And I was already, I was fed up. I was tired of the, the New York winters walking around. Sure. In my ratty sneakers, like freezing my ass off trying to find drugs. And I felt like I was 100 years old and um, not like... I, I got to say, I got I got to say, for white guy, you age really well, you know. Thanks. I, I, I've actually heard that about uh, heroin addicts that, to a certain extent, because it slows down your metabolism, maybe it... Um, Is that right? I don't know. I, th- that's a theory. Because you're a skinny guy. I mean, yeah. I, I knew people who in NA when I finally got into recovery that uh, were... Looked very young. Looked a lot younger than they were. I knew. I know one of the controversy. I don't know what it was. It like ten, fifteen years ago in fashion with the heroin chic, mm-hmm. where these girls are beautiful, but they had that almost drowsy look to them. Uh-huh. But they're super skinny, right? And super skinny always helped in fashion. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm. I have friends too. They would tell me years later, like they're on heroin, like they're working. Okay. It's interesting. It's one of those drugs that you could take and still functional. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so. I think lots of drugs are like that. I mean, you, speed, are you functional speed, on crack though? No, I no. don't think with crack, the the it lasts for such a short time mm-hmm. that I don't think you could be functional because you're you're looking for the fix again. Trying to get high. although some people postpone their getting high until after the shift. You know, this with, that's true. with all drugs. You know, I I can't understand that be that was so miserable the times I had to do that. I mean, I can't imagine making that your life but and and are you uh, are you one of those guys to believe that um and people always tell me uh, only way you could stop taking drugs if you want to they can't the family can't force you to do it yeah it's, nobody can tell you that because you've heard all the 
all the arguments. There's no, it, there's there's no. Uh, I I was I was tired of it, and that's why I quit. And it's not because I'm a better person. It's just because at some point you the hit stars the aligned, and I was sick sick of it. And maybe losing friends too. I think yeah, I kind of I drifted away from a lot of friends, but I had you know I had friends who were who were Druggies. running buddies. Yeah, but it it's kind of a solitary activity. Like heroin is you not really, it's not really a social thing. It's not like uh, what is that stupid movie Train Spotting? It's not oh like yeah, that. <laughs> or it wasn't for me anyway. So eventually, you leave Maryland, Virginia area. You move to New York City, mm-hmm. and eventually you start working adult business, and. Um, the fanzine that you showed me, I yeah. was very impressed. It's it's, ama- it's amazing that one person could, w- with the collaboration of the writers, to do something like that. And you, you kind of knew from the beginning, even if you did it, chances are you're not going to make money, but you did it anyway. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, what was the name of the magazine? It was called uh, Panty Line Fever. But it was mainly because there, at the, that time there was like the whole zine revolution was happening, and I, I just saw... I, I had a friend who worked in... Uh, this store in in uh, Manhattan called See Here, and they sh- they sold all kinds of uh, of uh, fanzines and um, other kind of underground crap. And I was I was just excited by that whole scene, and I wanted to be a part of it. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't even like I had a real good concept. I don't think the, as as zines go, many many people did went much much further and and uh, created much better product but i i'm really glad i did it because it did open a lot of doors uh in the mainstream well not mainstream but in the in the regular porn world sure uh, so that's how i got my uh, first job with screw was, uh, was through that and how do you explain to someone who's never lived that lived that era and um adult scene in new york like screw magazine was huge deal it was run by a, a, a fat jew mm-hmm. let's be honest he was love fat, Al Ghost. fat is an understatement <laughs> <laughs> Al Ghosting, yeah. one of the most interesting, colorful figures to work in adult business. Um, he ran this magazine, and there's interesting articles and nudity there, but he made money because of those uh, classified ads. If you're looking for a hooker or yeah. trannies, whatnot, I mean, Screw Magazine is the place you go. And right. this is a strange thing to say to someone 20 years and younger because why don't you just Craigslist or whatever but it wasn't an option for back then before the internet Mm -hmm. uh, it was that was the place to go and it was they had a total monopoly on uh, on the sex world of the underground sure New York so I I, I, and then Al Ghostin used to have a public access show on TV Mm -hmm. and for those of you who don't live in the States some reason the Midnight Blue. Midnight Blue. But they made a decision where public have their own channel to show their show. What is it? Yeah, well, there's there's public access TV, and they have that, or they had that all over the country. I don't know what it's like with cable TV anymore. I Mm -hmm. I think that might have gone by the wayside. But at the time, there was a huge, thriving public access TV thing. And actually, I did a couple shows with, with friends of mine in Manhattan Manhattan Neighborhood Network sure. uh, they had a couple channels devoted to public access but they also had another channel that was devoted to pay access so you uh, uh, somehow Goldstein was able to pay for the late night slot on channel 35 and that would 
uh, allow him to show tits. Show tits, a lot of interview, a lot of porn people. Yeah, and you didn't talk about anything. And, and, and a lot of outrageous stuff. And did he even run for mayor of New York City, too? Uh, he, he ran for um, sheriff of Broward County, Florida. Uh. <laughs> Actually, I have a T-shirt from the campaign. And in, in fact, the, the director, who uh, Todd Phillips, who did uh, uh, Hangover 1, 2, and 3, and did a documentary about Gigi Allen. What was the name of the uh, uh Hated. Hated. But he also made a documentary about Al Goldstein. Yeah, uh, it's called uh, Screwed, and um, a lot of my friends are in it. Actually, the guy who got me into the porn world uh, was the became the senior editor of, of Screw. He's in that movie. It's David Aaron Clark. We both worked with him over at Evil Angel for a while. Yes. And, um, I didn't know he was a senior editor there. Yeah, when I, when, when I first talked to him, I think he was uh, a managing, not a managing editor, but he, he, he was like maybe an associate. He, I think he'd been working there a couple of years. And then, uh, may, it, may I add a disclaimer? Because I was friend with Dave for six, seven years. Mm-hmm. He did something that pissed me off. I got angry. And um, <laughs> I got angry with him. And last thing I remember saying was, I hope you have a fucking heart attack and die. <laughs> Which he does three, four months later. I don't know why you're laughing at that. He was 50 think, years old. I think, he would, I think he'd be laughing. He would be laughing too because he had a good sense of But he pissed me off. But I don't feel good about it. I was in Europe and John Stelliano emailed me telling me, he, my former boss telling me, um, Dave Aaron Clark had a heart attack, passed away, and just yeah. take care of yourself. He was a, he was a great a great guy. I, I, He's a great guy. It's fun friend. to talk. He was uh, obsessed. Very intelligent. Uh, very intelligent. He was very obsessed with Asian stuff, and like uh, he make you look like a casual fan of uh, Japan. But yeah, he had he had a, an amazing knowledge of uh, Japanese porn, Japanese, Japanese cinema, books, even anime. Yeah. Uh, which I can't stand. Him. In fact, the last time I talked to him, except for when I was screaming at him, the one uh, uh, casual, fun conversation I had with him, we were talking about how much we love uh, Hannah Montana, <laughs> aka Miley Cyrus. How creepy is that? <laughs> Two forty-plus-year-old guy talking about Miley Cyrus. But um, okay, so he was senior editor for Screw Magazine. I'm, I'm telling you, if you don't know Screw Magazine. It was a huge force in New York City, yeah. and there's a lot of uh, sex work in New York City, and uh, that thing was really the center of it. I mean, uh, he, uh, Al was old school because he knew all all the people. Uh, I think Larry Levinson or who was the guy? Um, who, who he was he was best friends with the guy who used to run Plato's Retreat. I think his name was Levinson. I can't, I can't remember, but uh, that whole '70s. Uh, golden age of sleaze uh, all came out of and that's I think that's what attracted me and a lot of my friends to Screw and Midnight Blue in the 90s and made it a, a, a plum job you know a covet mm-hmm. a job to covet uh, was that that was sort of the the last remaining uh, part of that that sleazy era, yeah. The the glory days of New York when just anything goes. Kind of I thing. saw there, it, that had been kind of wiped out during the the Rudiani, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, like when he came around, that 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 was really the last uh, the last gasp. But in the early nineties, it was it was still it was sort of keeping the flame alive, you know. 
It makes me sad because I, I miss all that. Like the first time I went to New York City was maybe seven to ten days after nine eleven. So it, it was such an odd time to go to New York City the first time. But I did go to Times Square and, and a couple of those porno plays. And I could tell even then it was f- slowly fading away. And uh, what little I saw, I kind of liked it. But I just like sadly realized, you know, that the, the fun part is all gone. Um, but a- to- AIDS had a lot to do with the, the sex scene, too. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the, it just... I guess a lot of the players, and 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 you, and you you and I are good friend Joy Severo, one of the greatest porn actor and uh, director. Mm-hmm. He used to tell me he used to do live sex show, in, you know, Times Square, yeah, which is yeah. like shocking. <laughs> Knowing what it looks like now, it's so corporate and so Disney, and mm-hmm. um, it just shows money will get rid of you know if if, if money's involved, whichever thing that will create the most amount of money will take over, you yeah. know, and uh, family Disney shit. Not shit, but those fun things for family will beat out sex show, you know. Yeah, it was very sad when the, when that started happening. And so you work for Screw Magazine. Uh, did you ever talk to Al? Had a conversation with him? Well, not really. I he didn't really talk to underlings that much. I mean, he he the he would he was actually a real uh, asshole to work for, according to my. Friends, my mm-hmm. friend uh, Ivan, who was uh, the he was the main editor at um, Midnight, Midnight Blue. Okay, was um, he hates Al? Yeah, <laughs> he, he wishes him dead, but he kind of he almost got his wish pretty much because Al lost everything. It was a there's an amazing movie called um, Porn King, which documents the time after he lost everything. After, right? Yeah, just he he got. He finally pissed off too many people. He got had too many divorces. Uh, he got too many rulings against <laughs> him, and he ended up. Se- I think he sold the Screw name and and uh, the the entity of of Screw. He sold for like twenty grand or something. Yeah. Like that. I mean, when it was like a you know multi million dollar. I mean, in, in a heyday in like seventies and eighty, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you know, and I don't know about the seventies. I don't know how how much money he was making from it in the seventies, but in the eighties for sure, yeah. there was a lot of money. And in the eighties, uh, he had uh, those nine seven zero numbers. The the you call in and mm-hmm. uh, and either talk live to a girl or mm-hmm. or jack off to some recording, and uh, that was that was huge for a while. And then in the nineties. That kind of petered out. The bottom fell out of that market, and then he was still—he was just coasting on hooker ads, basically. Sure, but he lost everything. I mean, believe me, I love those horrible, vulgar humor. I really do. And the two institutions that did really well, in my opinion, was Larry Flynn's Hustler magazine, because mm-hmm. some of those cartoons are just <laughs> horrible. I mean, they're wonderful to me, but it's horrible to ninety percent of humanity. It's just horrible child molestation case. And people, what you're saying is it's it's funny to you, but it's horrible to humanity. Yeah, it's 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 a whole. Uh, they're terrifically funny. It makes me glee and makes me cry, like laugh like a little girl. Uh-huh. But it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And Al was doing that. Like Al got sued, if, if I remember right, he got sued by his son because he said something about. His son getting, I don't remember, his son supposed to get molested by someone. or uh-huh. No one are uh, safe. Right, wait, are you talking about Goldstein? Al Goldstein, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he used to, <laughs> he, put, he would have, 
he when he was estranged from his son, he would put ads in Screw with like a a, a huge uh. You know, they do these really, not even Photoshop, just like cutouts. Cutouts. Like these like these little collages. Yeah. And he'd have his son's face with all these dicks pointing at it. Yeah, like, or getting fucked know. in the ass yeah. or whatever, yeah. It's insane. Well, well, one thing he did, like... He had no filter whatsoever. I mean, no. Be- and first time I saw him, here's the funny thing. I cannot say nothing but good thing about Al because the three or four times I met, he couldn't be a nicer human being. Yeah. He was nice. And he was dating this Japanese girl at the time. And so, you know, That's she... why he was nice. He thought you were a girl. <laughs> it was nice. Oh, he did have a very bad eyesight, I have to say. <laughs> but I remember this fan came up, and the next thing you knew, Alex was saying, Shut the fuck up, you faggot. Get the fuck out of you, motherfucker. And like, it's really funny to see our one of our favorite Jewish uncle losing his, <laughs> his cool and calling somebody a motherfucker. And he was like 60 some years old at the time. I mean, he's got to be in the 70s or something by yeah, now. Yeah. But, but he. That's what I like about this country, just those crazy characters, you know? Yeah. So it was fun talking to him. It's very sad that him losing money, you know, I, I don't take a delight in it because I, I didn't have a bad relationship with him. But right. I have to say one of the funniest things he ever did, <laughs> one of the funniest he did. It's so mean when our, uh, well, my former boss, John Stalliano, when he was, uh, when he said he was HIV positive, Larry Flint has no mercy at all. Yeah. It just, just show pictures of a trannies fucking him in his mouth and asshole and giving him AIDS and stuff. And later on, Larry was surprised like John was angry with him. Like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Pointing dick in somebody's mouth getting AIDS is not going to win a lot of friendship here. Oh, yeah. But that's that's Larry. But, you know, I, that's how great this country is, the free speech. Like, no mercy at all. Mm-hmm. No mercy. Um... So you work, work, you work for Al, uh, Al's company. Well, I, I didn't actually when I first got hired. Freelance, right? It was, it was actually uh, uh, David Aaron Clark got me a job. He got me an interview with um, a couple of, of porn magazines. Um, and Which gay ones? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that came later. No, just kidding. Um, no, he uh, actually he introduced me to. Um, to the the senior editor of Screw, right? Got, uh, he who uh, told me about uh, jobs that would come up, and uh, so I interviewed with uh, Diane Hansen of Leg Show, and I didn't get the job. And then I I interviewed with uh, Chip Maloney at uh, Live Girls, which was a division of High Society, right? And that was where I got hired as an associate editor. I, I have to say, I, I I actually like High Society a lot. I was uh, a managing editor for about six months. Actually, more than that, I, I, I worked there for uh, a long time. But the, I, they had just, uh, they had just bumped me up to managing editor, and mm-hmm. I, uh, that was when I, I got hired away somewhere else. So you're working for a while. Then eventually, you heard opening in Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, through um, Richard Kern, uh, the photographer Richard Kern uh, was. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, he's he's great. He he, I knew him from my the neighborhood I I lived in, and we had a lot of mutual friends. And he uh, he knew Alan McTonnell, who was editing Hustler at the time, and he said they needed a new. Uh, they were going to d- launch a a ripoff of Leg Show, basically. <laughs> and um, wait, wait, but they didn't own Leg Show, right? No, Leg Show was uh, Mavita Media. Mm-hmm. They were a New York company, or New Jersey. I can't remember. 
and then uh, he uh so he he got me an interview and they fl- actually flew me out there to interview it was very exciting and uh flattering you know that i so i snuck away from high society and interviewed with them and i came back and deciding that i wanted to do it and i, I it was kind of a crazy decision at the time and i kind of regret it in a lot of ways cuz i love new york and you love new york and you I also gave, had a girlfriend yeah the i was going out with the love of my life and i had a, a $500 apartment it was uh, it was a really what, what was the tranny's name again rick <laughs> yoshi um, so I, uh, after I, living here 13, 14 years, do you regret that decision? You wish you would have just stayed in New York city? Who knows? You know, you know, you can never know what your life would have been like. Yeah. You know, I, I could be, I could be living on the street there for all I know. What you deserve. Exactly. <laughs> I do. Uh, so you got the job, you moved to LA I and you, you're LA. working for Larry Flint. Yeah. And uh, we well, why, what was the reaction when you told them you're quitting, you're moving to LA? Did they care or they they were extremely offended, and they they told me to get out that same day. <laughs> oh, the day? Yeah. <laughs> Carmine Bellucci was the uh, he was the main um, I forget what his name of his. He was the editor of all the magazines. He had he was like the the head of the editorial department, and he. Uh, he felt uh, personally um, betrayed. betrayed that I, that after getting promoted, you know, a few months after getting promoted, that I would go to their main com- competitor. But uh, did you ever talk to any of them after that? Oh yeah, I'm still friends with Chip. There's a, l- a few people that that I know. Okay, the people that you talked to, they were not angry, right? Yeah, no, that, none of the the, gr- the grunts on the ground. Mm-hmm. It was just the the executives were pissed off. Sure. So you go from high society to Larry Flint, and what? What? How long did you work with Larry Flint? <laughs> uh, I was there for four years, maybe uh, three. No, three and a half years. Did, and what was your experience working for Larry Flint's uh, company? So you work at that La Cienega Wilshire intersection. Yeah, that, the big, the black building. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I can't believe you spent time there. Yeah, I had my own office. It was, uh, but you know, it was a lot of, it was, grunt work. I don't know. I I. I worked really hard. I always felt like I was kind of, uh, I was kind of in over my head there. Like I, I was doing pretty much the whole, me and my art director were the Wait, whole Wait, you were working there late 90s? Um, yeah, this, I got hired in 96 and I left to uh, end of 99. All right, for those of you, I think Hustler was still big back then, mm-hmm. for sure. Internet just fucked everyone over, but... yeah. Yeah, I don't know uh, where they stand now. I know he, he's always diversified, though. He's always had tons of mainstream magazines sure. as well. So uh, I don't know how... I'm sure Hustler itself is not doing all that great. But um, Well, I just, I just think magazine... Uh, printed magazine business, period. Yeah, yeah. Unless you just happen to have, like, New Yorker or uh, Vanity Fair or, you know, those who always really do well. I think mm-hmm. they're still competitive, but, boy, I mean... Adios, Newsweek, right? They were gone, and yeah, uh. um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I was, uh, it, it was kind of a lonely time, you know. I yeah, my, I was trying to keep a long distance relationship going, and I was uh, working a lot. I was in the office a lot, and I had, a, I got an apartment that was within uh, bicycling distance from the office, and um. You know, I I think we put out some good magazines. I, I my 
art director was amazing, Cynthia Patterson. She was a really she she really saved that magazine from being a total piece of hack work. Cause, sure, because all I was doing was the writing and then and the buying of of photography and stuff like that. She actually started shooting for the magazine. She she had a lot more contact. She'd been in California for a long sure. Time so, uh, you know, it, it, but the organization was very corporate. You know, we had the third floor was the editorial offices. Sure. And we would, everybody who was there was pretty much given free reign as long as you got the product out, you know. But for me, I just never really fit in in California. I, it's always been that way. Like, I never. Because when you flew in uh, for that interview, that was first time ever in L.A., right? Yeah. 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 East Coast and West Coast. This is so different. God, I know some people come out here from the East Coast and they love it and they never would think of living anywhere else. You know? Sure. And I've just never been that way. I've always been kind of alienated in, in L.A. Well, let's talk a few more minutes before we end this thing. A Qu- couple questions. Um, so you work with Richard Kern, who is a big photographer, mm-hmm. and he has his own show on Vice, and I love it. I mean, I saw him in New York maybe year ago mm-hmm. i like i like his photographer be, photography because i mean he definitely have a pervert's eyes and yeah. he's, he's always taking pictures of young girls and he's always uh, kept kind of uh, an amateur edge to his photography sure. even though he's he's a total professional and he, he knows very good photographer for knows, sure yeah he knows lighting he knows everything but he's uh but he, the way but he, you can see his uh his hand in the photography even when he's just shooting a girl yeah. and you never see him it's got a personal touch to it, right? Like you, it, it much like Terry Richardson does it too. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a there's an almost accidental quality. Like he he's always been good at like shooting a lot of stuff and then taking the stuff that looks like it just happened by accident, even though it obviously didn't. And and I like those girls that he has got them because they're young and probably one of the first jobs they've ever done in that uh, fashion and whatnot. Yeah. And so there's a sleaze factor as well. Sleaze factor, and like I, I kind of like the awkwardness. Like the girl is so new, they don't know how to pose and stuff. I kind of take. That's a big thing for me in in porn. I I hate that, you know the, the routine that girls get into when they're they're too porny. Yeah, it's it's just just, it's so anti-sex. And and um. Especially if you're dumb, like some dumb director that giving direction to a girl or yeah. saying, like, oh, you like anal, like, no, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, 100% of girls that you shoot doing anal, they actually don't like it, but they can't get paid or get work if they say they don't like anal. Right. Because things are supposed to come out of ass, not into it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to. No, a lot of girls like anal, but a lot of girls don't, too. You know? Yeah. It, 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 it just seems it's just like an amazing dumb coincidence that all the girls that you interview. Happen they like anal. Anal. yeah, uh-huh. and and they, they they pretend like they really like you. They don't. <laughs> they like the paycheck, you idiot. So, but l- let's fake. I, I like that and uh, the awkwardness. Like it just sh- that's one sad thing you see. Like when you see a porno girl uh, getting into it, like first week or two, and it just happened to be convention. Mm-hmm. They're still beautiful, innocent, but five years later, when you take the picture of them, they that that's gone you know they just look so worn out you know yeah. and um you could tell they're just like sick of it yeah. I, I just think if you want to do it because you want to do it just do it if you're going to do it just do it 
but don't go beyond the point like you start hating it, you know? To me, it's not a huge tragedy. It's just, uh, you know, it's like any kind of showbiz, you know? If, you, if you're not a real artist, you're going to end up doing the same shit over and over again and, and, and making it less convincing each time. Sure. You know, and you see that with acting as well. It's a, there's just another form of acting. Yeah. Uh, and, but the, the, other, the thing that makes it different from acting is that you are, the girls are having real sex. And when that, and that's, I, as a porn consumer, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, those glimmers of reality sure and so anything that upsets the the script of regular porn you know the the that uh what abcd like activity uh is good because it throws everybody off balance and maybe you actually see some real emotion and 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 sometimes these guys making these movies don't don't know it or they forgot because can't you just at least talk to the girl and what she's into? Yeah. You should help them uh, figure out what they're good at and make them great at that. Yeah. But trying to make them do things that they don't, they're not into, you could, mm-hmm. it's so obvious. Well, it's obvious to someone who watched that, a lot of it, you know. But well, a lot of the directors have no personality of their own anyway. Yeah. Know, they're in it for other reasons. So. Yeah, not they're right. definitely not into porn and sex. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the thing that makes me They have me no so interpersonal cool. skills, so they mm-hmm. have, I really have nothing <laughs> at all <laughs> except a fancy camera. And I think if you're just a some person, young person watching porn first, you're so excited, yeah. you you don't you don't know. But if you watch it long enough, you could tell there are good ones and bad ones, and there's some like. Yeah, uh, I just as I as I as I move into my nineties, I don't uh, I I just have less patience for sorting through all the crap to find like mm-hmm. some good porn scene. I'd rather use my own imagination. Sure. Um, so Richard Kern, I like his stuff. I like I like the stuff when he does. He make the girls brush their teeth and their <laughs> the foams are just stripping down their neck and on uh, their tits. I mean, I don't know why they don't have those pictures in every dental office to encourage young boys from brushing their teeth because. You, I like I I'm singing something completely different when you said he makes the girls brush their teeth. <laughs> What's great about his porn is they always have shiny. White teeth. Yes, <laughs> you don't but, see you don't see spinach in between their gums. But Richard Kern, I don't know. It's just it's just so fun to watch them jumping on the bed and and um, brushing their teeth. But it, but they're so young and not experienced. The way he does it is so pervy in a good way. Mm-hmm. He knows that you yeah, know. Yeah. He and he just looked like who's that pervert cartoonist guy from Cleveland? Uh, uh, Harvey Pekar. No. Oh no, not him. You're talking about uh, Robert Crumb. Yeah, yeah, they both have that tall glasses, yeah. creepy look to them, but they're really, really good at it. But uh, Richard Kern, big fan, and um, what was he like? I have one more question about another person famous from then. That's it. Who? Uh, uh, Richard, Richard Kern. Uh, he's very nice. He's a real like laconic guy. He's, he's kind of hard to get to know, but um, he's always been stand-up guy for me. And when I when I um I think I did mention the name and I think he did tell me to say hi to you. But I saw him in New York City, the new book that he released. Uh, they're just beautiful books. I mean, just it's full of naked, beautiful girls. Yeah. And um, well, I I knew his name from when I first moved to, to New York. He was really big in the punk scene. He he shot a lot of. Uh, oh, so it wasn't always new stuff. Underground movies, yeah, that weren't porn. And uh, ah. he, all through the eighties, he 
if you look at any of his stuff then uh he'd have porn elements like he'd have you know outrageous sex happening or like you know lots of nudity but it was uh it was more vicious you know mm-hmm. like when he got in he got into porn it was kind of a transition even though his stuff has a, a unique quality to it it's still pornography now sure because when he started it wasn't pornography it was like punk rock kind of yeah, I, 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 I really like his stuff. I like him, uh, Mario Testano. I like Terry Richardson, the guys like that. There's, it, it, it's interesting. If you don't follow that stuff, you would think every ph- photograph looks same. But if you watch somebody's stuff after a while, you could kind of see individual style of, you know, taking pictures. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just all amazed by a guy like uh, R- uh, Richard Kerr and and a guy like Terry Richardson who. Um, he he made me laugh the first time I saw him. He he would use this cheap, almost disposable camera, uh-huh. but he has such a good eye and hand eye coordination that he takes great pictures. You know. Yeah. And the, my last famous brief from uh, Hustler was the guy who wrote uh, Generation Kill. You knew that guy. Oh yeah, he was in the uh, Evan Wright was in the office next to mine. Um, great writer. He uh, he used to be the features. Uh, I don't know they called him the features editor, but he was the main feature writer mm-hmm. of uh, Hustler. So all th- anything, you know, the anytime you read one of the Hustler articles that you know was topical and well written and and actual journalism, that was him. Well, what was what? But what was his deal? He he always went again to a serious journalism. He couldn't get a job, so he went with Hustler, or uh, or just while writing for Hustler, he just developed this taste for writing something serious. I don't know which came first. I don't know. I think I I, I heard that. Uh, I think he had. Uh, he might have had some a mainstream job before. I see. Or, I'm not sure. Um, you know, he had his own uh, his own issues that I probably shouldn't talk about since I'd be talking right out of my ass. But uh, you know, he 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 definitely appreciated the hustler aesthetic. He like sure. He liked the freedom of you know being able to be insulting or being be extremely controversial you know he did a, an article that i liked about um max hardcore that one was really good too yeah he did that one for la weekly i think but, oh but uh he did an article on uh, ne- uh northern california neo-nazis it was pretty amazing he, he went and, and hung out with them and uh wait wait but did he know he was writing for hustler yeah, yeah oh okay so it wasn't one of those things that hunter s thompson did with that uh um Hell's Angel that they were really mad at him later on. They knew he was writing a book, I think. Are you sure? I don't know. I never got the. I love that book. I never got the impression that, oh, he, was, okay. that he was pretending. I I, I I know he got in because he was a biker and mm-hmm. you know he, he he rode a motorcycle and he uh, he had a, a a friend who was in the club, but I I don't know what um hmm, interesting. Well, when when Evan wrote that article, it was a. Uh, <coughs> I think I I had an art uh, a conversation with him after I read it, and um, I was pointing out that uh, I like the fact that you know there's so many there's so many ways you can approach a story. Sure. It's not you know there, there's no one truth. You know, obviously, depending on what pr- perspective you're talking about, and uh, I liked the fact that he was. <laughs> He embra- he kind of embraced that. It's not that he wrote lies or that he wrote uh, anything that wasn't true, but he wasn't afraid to slant a story to make it entertaining. 
you know, he would, and and he, uh, you know, we we what we were talking about was like the myth of of uh, being objective. There's mm-hmm. no such thing as being objective. You could strive for it if that's what you're sure. into, but you don't have to. There's all kinds of other journalism where you're you you completely embrace the fact that you're subjective about what you're writing about and that you have a, an opinion and a point of view and uh i like that i think that's what makes his writing good i think generation kill was good for that reason too you know he didn't he wasn't afraid to insert himself in the story sure but he didn't it wasn't but just because he's an egomaniac it was because look i've got an opinion about this so you better know where i'm coming from right so I, I, I really like it, and I think that's really started with going back Hunter S. Thompson, yeah. who um, known as Gonzo Journalism, which yeah. is Gonzo is a, such a big part of porno business, too. And um, uh, how would you describe Gonzo porno? It's basically a person who is filming the movie is actually part of the story as well. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it, where the people in the movie acknowledge the camera and the yeah. guy behind the camera. Yeah. And, and and I think that was like populated by my former boss in York. I guess you still work for John Stalliano, but guys like Max Harcourt, mm-hmm. um, um, who's that fat chap? Ed Powers, <laughs> Rodney Morris of the world. Those are the like uh-huh. early guys. Made Ugly a tra- George. Yeah, made a transition from the porn, which was actually filmed like a movie, mm-hmm. but did, you know that was a huge watershed moment for the porn too. And Evan Wright wrote an article about um, Max Harcourt, who is very controversial he went to prison obscenity case yeah. but I, I really appreciate his honesty how much like he actually kind of liked his stuff you know which yeah. is I, when I, I interviewed Max too and I my I have uh, real mixed feelings about it because I I I think Evan's article is way better than anything mm-hmm. that I came up with I could I really couldn't get a handle on yeah. my feelings about it so I just did a straight porno interview basically but uh, well, you tell me your mixed feelings because I'll tell you mine. Well, uh, when I was there, and maybe I was just being, um, maybe this was a, a Potemkin Village thing, but I got the impression that it was extremely professional set, like th- that he was very upfront about everything he wanted. Then again, I didn't see everything that he. Isn't this a whole Heisenberg principle too? When you're being observed, you behave differently too. Probably, mm-hmm. probably that too. I, because then, uh, since then, I've heard. So many people say the exact opposite. That yeah, they, you know they they hate him for for uh, you know girls who were fresh in the business who feel that he abused their uh, naivete and I have heard uh, and I've heard that from girls who are extremely professional and I know aren't you know yeah doing it to for uh, to self-aggrandize or, or to you know get sympathy or anything like that you know? and I, I even heard the uh, accusation of rape and things like that yeah. and I don't know what to say one way or another because um, yeah that's a that's a tough one because you're already crossing the line where you're getting paid for sex but when, when, when does it become like abuse and like finally assault and rape you know so it, I'm not there so yeah. I do have a mixed feeling and having and also disclaimer it, it, it just it just shows I do have a mixed feeling because on one hand I'm, I'm disgusted by it, but at the same time love watching his movies too, you know? Well, it, it gets to the thing like he would push the envelope, he would push girls past their comfort point so you would get an emotional reaction. Sure. You know, and what the creepiest one is, of course, he gets girls to cry. Or yeah. Whatever, and uh, I, I have jokingly said there's times I really like that, depends on the girl, but... Yeah, but, you know... It, 
obviously, you know, sometimes as a porn consumer, that's better than the alternative, which is no emotion whatsoever. You know? Sure. But on the other hand, I can't condone it, you know, as a practice. And I, I, I just realized I, I don't have to have an opinion about Max Hardcore. You know, my, my, my experience with him was as some guy that he felt he wanted to, to uh, suck up to or, or get in the good graces of sure. when I was writing an article for Hustler. If I, if I hadn't been, uh, you know, if I'd been some, you know, my experience would be completely different if I was some girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not the one to, to be deciding on the, you know, whether Max Harcourt and Paul Little is an evil person or not. I, I, I just I have mixed feeling because but I, I'm going to listen to the mm-hmm. people who who are in a better position. Yeah, I mean he could be a nicer person, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend, his stage name's DB Cooper. He used to hang out with him, and mm-hmm. like whenever I hang out, I I don't know what to say. I mean, even though if all those things are true, I'm I'm such a weak person when it comes to women, you know, mm-hmm. because he he sent this one girl. She looks. Asian or Filipino, but she's actually Mexican, which was surprising. But she, um, mm. she did a hardcore scene. But yeah, he, Max just was nice and sent sent her over to my direction, and she just let me suck her her tits for a while. You know, like uh-huh. it's kind of hard to get mad at any man who sends a <laughs> girl over to let you do that. You know, right. so it 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 took me. I don't know. I, I guess I have a rest development because. Of course, you know, I went to big, I was still in Afghanistan twice and helping my friends. Now I'm not going to mention it because I'm just talking yeah. about porn, but I want to help those women too. But there are other, I mean, I don't have that kind of feeling about Afghan women because you, the whole time you're looking at them, you just feel bad and how they've been treated. Mm-hmm. But when I see women in that circumstance, the porn. Also, you're racist. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 uh, <laughs> sexist. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm trying to rationalize my idea of prostitution should be illegal, porn should be illegal, but at the same time, women should be protected. They should be protected in those environments, you know? Like, yes, absolutely. In, in, and I'm trying to com- rationally convince myself that I could like prostitutes who are doing it because they want to do it and consume porn and go to strip club. At the same time, there are women that need to be helped. But it's really hard to say in public, like, I want to help these women and stuff like that, which sounds great and people want to help me, help those people. But it's really hard for me to put my name attached to it because with all this porno shit, too. So I don't don't know what to do. Yeah, no, you're in a weird position. It's really weird. Yeah. I got fired from porno and next thing you know, I'm Afghanistan trying to help these women. Right. Odd, you know. I mean, I'm I'm a fucking oddball, you know. My feeling is Dostoevsky talk about that. Like, uh, the, uh, what's that? That um, Madonna. Madonna horror thing. Madonna Saram, city of Saram, I guess, uh, complex where sometimes people see women like a both aspect of it, you know? Uh-huh. And um, I don't want to present myself thinking like I don't, think sexual thought when I see attractive women because I do but that's it I'm not, I'm not going to go beyond that and um, but yeah I've I, I just been in the two crazy worlds like women in the Middle East like it's just shocking to me how they live and when you come to West and you, you see all sorts of crazy shit over here you know Yeah. well you got to find a way to uh, 
to balance to those two contri- contribute to that cause without um giving the the opponents of uh ammunition uh, you know the opponent yeah that's ammunition. that's why i don't want to be attached to it like that but when i when i can to certain people you mm. and me because we've worked in porn are always going to be scumbag evil. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, there's like nothing. especially you being the white exactly. devil that you exactly. are. Exactly. Well, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. Didn't even need to be in porn. I mean, you you look like Uncle Jack's twin brother on uh, Breaking Bad, the neo Nazis. <laughs> Only thing you're missing is a swastika on your neck. <laughs> Yoshi said something really funny. We were watching uh, that stupid ass show that he likes, Dexter. Oh yeah, <laughs> I love Dexter. <laughs> and what's the name of that uh, that character that uh, the uh, Oh, C.S. Lee, that the, the, the agent, yeah, yeah. C.S. Lee's character, he said he looks exactly like a, a combination of me and him. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, like, if you're a fan of Dexter, that Asian guy, he is such a creepazoid. I, 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 my um, like all the sleaze of Yoshi and me boiled into one. Well, yeah, it's just absolutely the worst. <laughs> and um, I'm I'm so behind because the the, the series just ended. I I still want to finish watching it, but I I, uh, it's, I, just, I watched that show like a little high school girl or something. It's, I'm so proud about been watching. Um, I I want to finish it. Uh, I I do. There's elements about like a lot, but um, yeah, it's dumb. I, I, it's 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 silly, but I, I like it. And um, actually, I met I met. The CS Lee guy from Dexter and the gay Asian guy from, which sounds redundant, but the gay Asian guy <laughs> from Entourage in the same art show. And um, hmm. the Mr. Was Lee. Was the art show like a wall with holes in it? <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> no, I mean, the Lee guy was really friendly, but the gay guy was like a little, um, he was a little prissy that night. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a good actor. I think, I think he was great in Entourage, but um, hmm. anyway. Um, Anything more about Evan Wright? Uh, I I love that book. I love that the uh, HBO series, and I wrote. I know that he wrote another book about some gang members in Q, uh, Miami. I really want to read that, but it it's was very, one guy, right? I think you, you, it was a. He he wrote that book, and he wrote a sequel to that book because oh, there's more of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm way behind the times. Yeah. So I I am um, interesting guy, but I, I just love it whenever I hear someone who worked in porno business somehow make it big in the mainstream. Yeah. Because he, that's so tough to do. He was. Uh, I wasn't surprised that. He, oh, is that right? Yeah, he's. Uh, he was very talented, and he always seemed like um, go-to guy. It was. It was more that he. He didn't seem like a porn lifer to me. You know, he mm-hmm. seemed like somebody who was in it because of the freedom. Sure. But like a lot of people, some people just get into it. You know, get a few skills, get a little experience, and then yeah. move on to other things. And, so uh, I, what I was surprised with uh, about Generation Kill was just him going over there, and you know he was one of the first. He took advantage. He, he got the opportunity to go, and he went, took it. He went right into the center of it. You know that was pretty amazing. And, and when he went, was way more dangerous than when I went. I think. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I understand that that thrill, and um, I'm, um, I'm I'm really looking forward to the day. No matter how you do it, eventually you're gonna to go to Japan. I think you should because, let's be honest, you and I we were never meant to the regular nine to five work for IBM kind of guys, you mm-hmm. know. And there's there's advantage and disadvantage. And advantage is you're willing to take a risk. And I think you should go to Japan. Now, my my request for my friends who are listening to the show, um, 
Rick, there might be a point where you get sick of living here and maybe going to Japan is not the uh, first option. Mm-hmm. If you have an opportunity to go to Korea and China, you're not going to completely close off that option, are you? No, I, 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 uh, I'd love to go to Korea. I'd, I'd love to see the rest of China. I went to Hong Kong for three days and it was really fun. So uh, I, I just... Uh, my my feeling is that you should give yourself opportunity because if you, even if, if you can't go to Japan now, if you just go to Korea and China, um, that could be your home base, mm-hmm. and you could visit Japan whenever you can. And uh, you you're that much closer of doing that, you know. I think you need to make a tough decision next couple of years. Um, if this is something that you really want and actually want, you could make it happen, you know. So um, let's let's work on it, and I hope I hope. Um, Iko will do podcasts. I want to. I want to do a bunch of them before I leave for Sweden, and and release that and see what people's reaction. Because if if enough people listen to it, they might want to help you. So did, did you say Iko's doing uh, stand up? She's in, she's Iko is a very pretty Japanese girl and she's doing stand up mm-hmm. as well. And I would like to get her on the podcast and you listening to it and chime in every once in a while, oh. and uh, before I leave. So so like I, I said, I can speak my fluent Japanese. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone thanks for listening to the show please support the show by uh, buying my t-shirts at Yoshiden or donate at yoshiden.com and also um, download my app at uh, apple.com at, um, uh, it's only for iPhones unfortunately I, even I don't have it but um, but those of you who has um, idea to help Rick uh, maybe opportunity in Japan, Korea, even China or Hong Kong just any suggestions I really appreciate it contacting me uh, on my Twitter account or emailing me at dumbyoshi at gmail.com <laughs> Y-O-S-H-I-D-U-M-B at gmail.com or contact Rick Call at Twitter account. And what was that again? Uh, at Toastubber. So uh, contact uh, us f- to help Rick and uh, thanks for listening to this week. And Rick, thanks for doing it. And um, I would like to interview again before um, I leave. So thanks for doing it again. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Call